Chatua Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, the latest from the JEC headquarters and the news of the Summer Jaguar Festival's new date and venue, plus how the pandemic has struck the auction houses as we talk to Silverstone Auctions founder Nick Whale. JECpodcast.com. Hello, Wayne Scott with you on episode one of series two of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. It's nice to be back in the saddle, I have to say. I hope you've been keeping well while we've been having a brief break from the JEC podcast, whilst we research and record lots of exciting interviews for the weeks to come. And we've got some beauties on the way, I can promise you. There's lots of really interesting people coming on this podcast over the coming weeks, starting, of course, this week, when we'll be talking to Nick Whale from Silverstone Auctions about just how they've been affected by the pandemic and also some of the implications of Brexit on selling cars across into European markets now. That's all to come on this episode. But first, I'll do as I always like to do and mention you, and in particular, all of the amazing listeners to this podcast who've been in touch over the past few weeks. We did put a message in Friday Spotlight, the email that we send out every Friday from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, just asking what you wanted on this podcast. Because I'm very keen that it's your show, this. It's your podcast, and I am just here to facilitate the conversations that you want to hear. I didn't think many people would get in touch, to be honest, but actually, I was wrong, because lots of you did, and loads of great ideas for future episodes have been shared with us over the past few weeks from in-depth looks at Mark II's to the telling of the XJ220 story. I've made a note of all the suggestions. There wasn't a single bad one amongst them, and we'll be putting them all out in the coming weeks here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, which makes this podcast just like the amazing magazine you get as part of your membership to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. The Jaguar Enthusiast magazine comes out every month, but it is a magazine that is led by you, the Jaguar community. It is your magazine, just like this is your podcast. So do get in touch, let us know what you want to see, what you want to hear, and we'll do our best to lay it on for you. You can get in touch with us really easily. JECpodcast.com is the website. You can use the contact form there. And I would urge you, if you are getting in touch, just to use the voice recorder on there because this being an audio podcast, it's always brilliant to be able to play you onto the show as well so that we can hear all of you from the Jaguar community across the world. And also give you a bit of a mention, as I will do, for Nick Stallard, who apparently does like to listen to this podcast while he's doing other things. That, he says, is its main benefit. He says, I can put my headphones on and I can go outside, work on the car or whatever, and I don't get disturbed. But when I sit down and read the magazine, my wife looks at me and tells me if I've got nothing better to do, I must go out and do some jobs. So the podcast is ideal. <laughs> Makes him look busier than he actually is. Well, Nick, it's good to be of service. Keep listening. <laughs> And we'll make some episodes a little bit longer for you to give you a bit more peace. As Nick Stallard got in touch via jecpodcast.com and you can do the same thing as well. 
So, as this is episode one of series two of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, and it's been, well, a few months since we've had uh, a recent episode of the podcast, I thought it was good to catch up on things from the office and to check in with our general manager of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, James Blackwell, who joins me now. We left the podcast at the end of series one, and things were starting to look better. They were even promising us a Christmas at one point. And in the months since, we've gone back into lockdown. Uh, and the policy for Summer Jaguar Festival, at least, was to continue organising the event in the hope that things would have eased and things would have got better in the intervening time. Because, of course, it takes months to make these events happen, months in the planning. However, Boris has unleashed his roadmap on us and we now know where we stand with dates. And unfortunately, Summer Jaguar Festival and our celebration of the uh, 60th anniversary of the E-Type, amongst other anniversaries as well, had to be changed and moved, didn't it? So what's the latest? Indeed, Wayne. And uh, yeah, so the latest is is we um, it's moved to a new venue. So we're moving across to Bicester Heritage Centre, uh, the, the venue there, which is really popular with the Sunday scrambles. Um yeah, I mean, he's ready to put it away. Is, is yes, we actually all the all the planning, all the organising, and then to add to the layer of complexity, we obviously knew that we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, with as you said, with with Christmas being changed, swept away at the last minute. You know, it, it made everything really unstable and uh, very very uncertain. So we then obviously had the planning of, of okay, what are what are our alternatives? Um, what can the what can the current venues do? Do we need to have a backup venue and all of that? So yeah, not only were we trying to plan for it, you know, the E Type 60th and all the other celebrations that we had that we have got planned with the XKs and the Mark Tens and the X Types, um, to name just a few of what we're going on. We also had to add in, okay, what what happens if this scenario happens? What happens if this scenario happens? And um, so when Boris announced his roadmap, it was very clear earlier on that uh, the Summer Jagged Festival, as its format, as we'd announced and, and promoted and planned for, just wasn't going to be possible. So we had to have a look at what alternatives we had. And we did have a few, you know, the events team worked really hard to bring up a, a number of different options and, uh, and and sort of give us a real clear objective, of, of depending on what the scenarios were. And so once we actually sat down as a, as a small group and looked at, you know, what was going to be the best fit out of those options, up comes Bista Heritage. So 4th of July, I was over in the States, obviously Independence Day. That has become where our new venue and our new date. And uh, we're, we're really looking forward to it, actually, because we already had some um some activities planned for for to, to go on at Bista heritage um the day before our day at blenheim so we've been able to bring that in um to the event all on the sunday which is so we've got a lot of movement going on as well now with uh, with track experiences as well plus you know the actual the venue itself with all the history and things there so it, it, you know it's still going to be a really really exciting event with lots going on yeah, going to be a special day. And, of course, the cruelty of it was that they announced in England, at least, that on May the 17th, the very day after the original dates for the Summer Jaguar Festival, they are opening hotels. But uh, for the new dates in July, there is not a hotel package with that, is there? Instead, it is a one-day event, and people are encouraged to come and sort of make their own arrangements in the Bicester area. But there's plenty to choose from, isn't there? 
There is that, that's that's correct, and you know we always try and make these events sort of more than just just one day. Um, you know, people spend a lot, want to travel from afar, and they want to come and meet up with their friends, and you know, and socialise. So we we we've expanded our we our our festivals to include a weekend, and that and, and hence the hotel packages. So sadly, when it became evident exactly as you say, the day after, you know, that was always going to be the case, wasn't it? There was always going to be something. There was going to be a day wrong for us, or whatever it was. So. So sadly, yeah, we we have we've had to um, put that one on the on the head for this time. But it, yeah, you know, there's still rooms available if people want to book direct with uh, with Hayfrop, or there are there are lots of other uh, accommodation venues um, available all around to suit all sorts, depending on what your budget is. But the, for us now, the focus is that one day, July the fourth, bring everyone together on that uh, on that day and just uh, and, and just enjoy it and celebrate everything that we've got to. Absolutely, and it's going to be great to see everyone enjoying those track experiences at Bista Heritage, and that's what it does bring us, doesn't it? There's an extra dynamic there because we are going to see cars using that track and cars in motion, cars being used, and we get the full Jaguar experience as a result. Sight and sound. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, it's going to be great to, to hear those cars from you know from the C's and the D's. You know, hearing those those fabulous XK engines. Um, you know, is is the background? You know, that's going to be your background music. Is is those cars running around the track, the broad speed, some of the SVO cars? You know, I mean, what a soundtrack for an event! Um, it's something we've always really wanted to do, actually. So it's going to be it's going to be a really nice, exciting first for us. Um, you know, we've we've had the parades in the past, which which have been great. They've been fantastic, but they've we've just not had that sort of that constant theatre and, and background. All, all day through the event. So some, some I am really looking forward to uh, experiencing myself. Well, of course, we've also managed to get a lot of the personalities and celebrities that we had hoped that would come and join us at Blenheim Palace and Haythrop Park in the uh, the previous iteration of the event. They're now coming to Bista with us as well. And one that's no stranger to this podcast, of course, Kevin McLeod, who you'll know from Channel 4's Grand Designs. He's confirmed that he's still going to join us at that new venue and those new dates. And I'm really looking forward to getting to interview him in person. And members are going to be able to meet him and learn more about what goes on behind the scenes of that tv show because we'll be talking to him not just about his love of jaguars and his car collection but also what he's known for of course designing buildings and entertaining us through the uh, tv screens but uh, he's just one example of loads of really interesting people that we're going to be interviewing and sharing the stories of as part of the event via our big screen tv it'd be interesting to see what you know what he's just talking about his you know his love of, of design no matter what it is you know in in a place like Bista Heritage with all its buildings and yes they're very purposeful of that but just to, to bring all of that together with the, the design the era that whole atmosphere it'd be, it'd be really interesting to get his take on on that um, and we're hoping there'll be you know a couple more sort of uh, some, some key names in there as well but um, hopefully we can we can bring a few more sort of really key people um, which will just add an extra element and dimension to the event again well of course there's lots to interest the visitor to Bista Heritage not only have you got the Summer Jaguar Festival and the biggest collection of the best Jaguars in the country of course the anniversaries of the E-Type the XK8 the X150 uh, the later XK8 of course the Mark 10 celebrating 60 years as well and of course 20 years of the Jaguar X-Type plus 
a recognition that it is 70 years since the very first win in a C-type of Jaguar at Le Mans. So loads of things to celebrate, loads of anniversaries there, but also the interest of having all those cars together, the trade stands, the displays, and also the things that Bista Heritage has to offer us. All of the amazing businesses there that you can go and visit and meet and learn about what they do, and some of the businesses at Bista Heritage, they, they do incredible craftsmanship, don't they? They do, and it's one of the reasons why the Sunday Scramble are so popular and um, I think the last time I went there that the uh, the microbreweries had, uh, had just opened up there um, which was uh, just added another really sort of interesting dimension to what they're doing at that, yes. at that place. Indeed Wrigley Monkey on site of course. Wrigley uh, Monkey yeah. that's the one. Yeah, we'll have to pop yes. in there for a cheeky pint or three uh, you can do the same so come and join us Summer Jaguar Festival it's changed date to the 4th of July it's changed venue to Bista Heritage no hotel packages with this one, uh, but uh, you can make your own arrangements of the plenty of hotels in the area for you to choose from. So how do people book their day tickets, James? We will be launching them in mid-April. Um, so as soon as they go on sale, we'll be letting everyone know also through the podcast, the, uh, the, the Friday Spotlight and, and on the website and, and, of course, in the magazine. Um, so day tickets will be available from mid-April and... Um, yeah, it's just, as I say, it is just a day ticket this time. So, brilliant. Wait till April, get booking. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, this then the first of our new features for Series 2 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, and we welcome back for it Richard West. Hi, Richard. How are you doing, Wayne? Good to talk to you again. Very good. Yes, good to be back with the podcast for another series, and uh, we had a great reminiscing session, really, didn't we, with you on Series 1. For 37 weeks, you took us through your life up and down the pit lane working in motorsport. But for this series, we're going to take a slightly different angle, and we have come up with the concept of Richard West's Hall of Fame, and we're basically going to go through some of your motor racing heroes, aren't we? And these are people that you've worked with or people that you've just looked up to over the years. Yeah, very much so. I mean, as we said in, in the series last year, and I can't believe where the time's going, March, already, but you do bump into people or you work with people or you, you could have worked with people who I look back on now and I think, well, what are some amazing people? And uh, as we agreed on the phone, you know, last week, the first one is going to be Daniel Sexton Gurney or Dan Gurney, as he was incredibly well known throughout the world of motorsport. Yeah, fantastic American driver and one of those drivers from this period of motorsport where basically they did everything, didn't they? Every discipline they were involved with at some point in their career. Yeah, they did. And interestingly, with Dan going straight into him, I mean, he was born on April the 13th, 1931, two very interesting parents, Jack Gurney and Roma Sexton, his mum and dad. They were very talented people. Jack Gurney um, actually graduated from the Harvard Business School with a master's degree. And Dan's three uncles also were all uh, MIT uh, engineers. And his great, uh, sorry, his grandfather, um, F. Gurney, he was the man responsible for the invention of the Gurney ball bearing and, and the company that produced them. So engineering was in Dan's blood. And by the age of 19, he'd already got caught up in the California hot rod culture. And he built and raced his own car on the Bonneville Salts Flats at the age of 19. 
Amazing. Well, mm. Formula One, IndyCar, NASCAR, Can-Am, Trans-Am, World Sports Cars. He did them all. And, of course, he did arrive at Le Mans as well, uh, to some success in the 60s, didn't he? Yes, he did. I mean, um, he's obviously his most famous time there was when he teamed up with AJ Foyt and drove the GT40 when they won the race in 1967. And it was Dan always, and when I talked to him several times, you know, in my in my career, we talked about some of those things. And of course, when you look back now, the gurney flap, which Dan designed with one of his engineers, was that little sort of right angled piece of metal that you see, or nowadays carbon composite, on rear wings on the top side or the underside, which became known as the gurney flap. Dan was the first man ever to wear a full face helmet. Uh, if you go right the way back there, I think it was the German Grand Prix, where he was the very first person to appear in a racing car wearing a full-face helmet. And at Le Mans in 67, when he and AJ Foyt um, historically won the race in the GT40, he was handed a bottle of champagne, which he popped the cork on and sprayed all over everybody. And from that day to this, it's always been part of the celebrations on the podiums of races all over the world. Wow, that's great. That's great information for pub quizzes, that is. Who was the first driver to spray champagne <laughs> at a race? It was Dan Gurney. Um, yeah. Uh, but he was. We're talking about the '60s when was it was really his heyday in the '60s, and um, you know he of course had successes and won races in Formula One. But mm. he had a fantastic relationship with Carroll Shelby, didn't he? And that led to well, you've said the Gurney flap. There was the Gurney bubble as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Dan was a very tall, very imposing man, and I mean, if, even in his later years, he was still an incredibly good-looking guy. But if you look at him in his early years, he was almost film star-like. There's a great picture of him on the AllAmericanRacers.com website, which, if you're a fan of Gurney, is really worth a visit because there's so many wonderful photographs on there from the Gurney archive. And there's a picture of him there with Paul Newman, and you can imagine them being in a, in a movie together. But you're right in what you say. He teamed up with Carol Shelby. And I think if I think back, I was talking to you about this yesterday, actually. When I look back, it was in the in 62, Gurney and Shelby, um, they, they had this dream of building an all-American racing team. And I think I'm right in saying it was Goodyear's president, a guy by the name of Victor Holt at the time, who said, guys, you should really call this all-American racers. And the one thing about Dan, and the many times you know, I met him and actually spent some time and talked to him, he was incredibly, incredibly modest man. And I don't think he was too comfortable with the title of having a team called All-American Racers. But, of course, it stuck. And he and Carol Shelby stayed together over a period of time with Dan, I think I'm right in saying, buying Carol out in 1970 when he became, you know, the sole owner of All-American Racers. Mm. Well, the Gurney bubble allowed him to fit into the GT40, of which he won Le Mans, as you said, in 1967. But mm. going back a little further than that, it was in a British car a BRM, I think mm. it was, mm, at Zandvoort, when a mm. pivotal moment in Dan Gurney's career took place. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah, it did, actually. And for those who are real fans, bit of a plug, but if, if, if those who are interested, if you look on my richardwestassociates.com website under the videos, there's a video of the McLaren... 50th celebrations that I was privileged to host back in 2013. And we got Dan on the live link again through Kathy Weeder, his long suffering, long term PA. And I, I pulled Dan up and I said to him, Dan, can you tell me a little bit about the um, Dan Gurney chicken shit breaking technique? And he smiled and I said, it's true, isn't it? What actually happened, and sadly it had some tragedy in it as well, uh, they'd gone to uh, race at Zandvoort in 1960. And the guy who Dan said he really, really felt 
um, was the greatest breaker in Formula One at the time was Sterling Moss. And he said, I tried to emulate Sterling, but in the 1960 Grand Prix, he said, um, I was, I was chasing a car down and he said, as I tried to emulate this amazing late braking technique of Sterling's, a brake hose burst or popped off as he put it. And it's a, I lost my rear brakes. He said, you know, I lost control of the car. It sadly killed a young spectator and Dan broke his arm and he was lucky to walk away from the car. But he said, after that, he said, I always gave a little tap on the brake pedal, which was just a reassurance for myself to know that there was a hard brake pedal there. And he said, I jokingly referred to it as the chicken shit school of braking. And he said, it's stuck with me ever since. But he said, the one thing, of course, in later years with drivers, you know, many of the Grand Prix drivers and Senna was a master at it. This using of the left foot to trail the brakes on the way into the corner was also used as a great setting up technique and is by many of the drivers to Today. Am I right in saying that at some point he tried to be president of America? Is that right? Oh, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, 1964. I mean, Dan became so popular within the US that um, Car and Driver magazine, that I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with, they actually promoted the idea that Dan should run for president in 64. And you know what? I think had he done, um, it would have been there. But when somebody checked the small print, he was too young to be considered as a candidate at the time. But many of his fans in the United States throughout his life, every four years, would sort of, you know, Dan for president. And uh, he was a very imposing man. And he was very, very thoughtful in the way he spoke. He was hugely considerate. And you know what? This is one thing that always stuck in my mind. We were on a podium together in the 90s uh, talking about sponsorship. I'd flown to to the States to do this podium with him and a number of leading stars. And Dan put his hand over the microphone and he said, why don't you come and work with me? And it really struck me because he, he, he didn't say, why don't you come and work for me? He said, come and work with me. And when you talk to anybody at the Eagle's Nest and the, and the workforce there now, it's a big organisation, you know, run by his son. But everybody felt part of the Gurney family and that, that exists to this day, I'm told. Amazing. And the family also continues his legacy in racing because uh, uh, both of his sons are involved. I think mm-hmm. one of his sons actually took over All-American Racing and, and still runs it to this day, doesn't he? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, and Eva, you know, and the family. I mean, it it really, it was a, I can't, you know, I only ever went there once when, when it was considerably smaller than it is today. And I, and I do intend to go back when we can travel again properly. I mean, in the States, if the invitation is still open. They're very, very close. But there were some people there. I mean, you talked about the Gurney bubble earlier. There's one guy for our listeners who made some of our listeners may be interested in looking up, a guy by the name of Phil Remington. Phil was a legendary fabricator. And, you know, there, there was nothing that that man couldn't do with components on a racing car. And he was a great part of the Carroll Shelby, Dan Gurney family. And he was a great example of the type of people that did and still do work for uh, All-American Racers because... They, they, there is a passion there that I can't even begin to describe. It, you, it, it's palpable when you when you go and visit the place. He was one of the legends of motorsport. He is in the Hall of Fame, inducted some twenty odd years ago from memory. Uh, Absolutely, he is, um, goes down in history as uh, one of the nice guys in motorsport as well. And of course, uh, died very recently, not two or three years ago. Yeah, 2018, he got sick at the age of 86 and and sadly got pneumonia. But I'd spoken to him about six months before that, and he he was obviously not, you know, not as well as he had been. But one of the great passions that he had, and again, this is something for our listeners, he designed and built the Alligator motorcycle, of which 36 only were built. and, And that reflected the number that was on his car on occasions. And it's an un- if you look it up again on his website at allamericanracers.com, 
it's a motorcycle where you sit incredibly low because, of course, being six foot four, he found riding a normal motorcycle quite uncomfortable. He was perched up too high, which makes me think of my man, Ollie Warren, in Superbikes, who's so tall. And if you look on his website and you see the pictures of the alligator, it's a remarkable piece of engineering where the rider sits incredibly low in the space frame in a very comfortable position. But Dan always wanted to get it into production. He never did. He built 36 of them. And uh, if you talk to motorcycle collectors around the world today who've got lovely things in their collection and you say, have you got an alligator? It's not uncommon to see the old tears well up. That's how legendary that Dan Gurney motorcycle is. Dan Gurney then, the first inductee into our Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, Hall of Fame. Who else have we got coming up in future weeks, Richard? Well, in my mind, I've been thinking about a whole range of people. Designers come to the fore. John Barnard, who uh, had an incredible history of design, started in the United States designing IndyCars for Bobby Unser and then was part of that incredible partnership with Ron Dennis, Crichton Brown and Bob Illman that became McLaren International. He then went on to form the GTO, the Guildford Technical Office for Ferrari. There are other people in there I've looked at, a couple of team owners, Tony Dow, who I want to talk about, who work with virtually every sports car team Formula One team that is there and a couple of little surprises that I'm working on at the moment where people have actually agreed to spare a little bit of time on the phone and come in and actually in their words tell you a little bit about uh, some of their exploits as well so the new Hall of Fame credit you with the idea you came up with it a lot of work going on behind the scenes and I greatly look forward to uh, updating everybody in the weeks ahead. Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're talking about Silverstone auctions. Now, they probably won't need an introduction to many of you. You will have seen them out at events across the country. They hold the exclusive automotive auction rights for Silverstone Circuit, where they traditionally hold a number of standalone events each year. And of course, you will have seen their auctions at the NEC Classic Motor Show and Race Retro, plus, of course, the Summer Jaguar Festival at Haythrop Park a couple of years ago, back in 2019. Well, the Silverstone Auctions team is headed by Nick Whale, and he joins me now. Hi, Nick. Good morning. How are you today? What a lovely day. The sun is shining, and despite this miserable lockdown, there is there is roots of, of hope out there with uh, a chance of being free soon, if Boris sticks to his word. Had I done this interview with you, Nick, 12 months ago, we would have been talking about all of the events that are coming up throughout 2020. Uh, looking forward to some of those events I've already mentioned, but 2020... Although it didn't pan out as we expected, it was a very successful year for Silverstone Auctions. In fact, you managed to hold one of your biggest records. What was it, 32.3 million? You're right, it was a record year. There's no question about that. We, uh, what, what we did really was we, we got involved early on, you know, like everybody in, on the planet, I would imagine. We, we panicked at first and thought, what on earth do we do here? And then we realized that there was a way of making it work. And, and the, the hybrid, as we call it, auction format that we came up with uh, is based around, instead of having you know, an event, obviously, which can't take place, so there's no event, we just rent a big hall. And we fill it full of as many cars as we can. 
And we then offered COVID viewing for a good two weeks, not two days like we normally do, two weeks of viewing. COVID friendly with masks and gloves and uh, all the things that you would expect and your temperature taken when you clock in. Um, it was viewing by appointment in a great big hall, so it was perfectly safe in that, in that sense. Uh, and by appointment, we'd only have one client at a time. And we were able to show the clients the cars, show them the history files and give them time, more time than we've ever been able to give them before, um, which went down well. And because the barn that we rented or the, the hall that we rented, different venues, were so big, you could actually start the engines and you could, you know, even pull out and drive the car up the drive. You know, so people like that fact. They liked the fact they got our attention. They liked the fact that they were under no time pressure. And um, come the actual auction day after the two weeks of viewing, um, we had nobody there, of course, so it was a bit spooky. So we built, I suppose, what you'd call a temporary film studio, really, um, with a sort of TV-quality type camera and a sound crew, and um, uh, coupled together a stage, and Jonathan Humber, our auctioneer, and I sat on said stage, and my little team were out there on the phones, manning the phones, and uh, we just sort of threw it together, and, and it worked really well. It had a great atmosphere, um, and we refined that over the years, so we... We, 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 as we progressed, we got things like a YouTube channel and of our own and things like that. So people could watch the auction on YouTube, which was a higher quality um, bit of filming. And, and they had their own unique atmosphere. And I think people are so fed up at home with um, not a lot to do. Hopefully we provided some, some sort of entertainment. Well, it is a perfect example of how all sorts of businesses have had to adapt to the situation over the last 12 months. And you, you really have excelled at it because you could have been forgiven for sort of shutting down the doors and, and not bothering at all last year. But incredible that you managed to not only do well, but break records. Do you think, though, that um, that sort of drama in the theatre that you get at events like the NEC where that audience gathers and the, the cars are seen under the lights of the show and all that kind of thing. That has obviously been lost to a certain degree. Do you think that matters? I do, actually, yeah. I think people love to come out and they love to go to events. Um, you know, classic car enthusiasts want to be with classic cars, don't they? And you can't be opening the door of, a, of an E-Type or 3.8 Mark II with that lovely smell for a start that, that emits the moment you open the door and, and the look of the leather, the wood, the feel, touching the steering wheel. You know, that's very real stuff. And I think it will come back. You know, people have said, oh, well, you'll no doubt stick to that format going forward. But actually, no, I, I, think, I think events will come back and I think physical auctions will always have a value um, and they'll always be there. Having said that, there is an emerging trend now of online auctions and uh you know we're, we're part of that and uh we've got plans afoot to expand in that area so we will have different routes to market for our customers and the pandemic will have genuinely given us uh food for thought and we will be improving our our customer offering you know there will be physical auctions um that they can put their cars into at good events where they want to be and we're also going to be investing in in an online business where if somebody wants to sell tomorrow and they don't want to wait for an event, they can they can uh, do that with us, you know. The classic car world. I wonder, though, whether you've seen a change in the buying patterns as a result of the online auctions, in the sense that 
like you say, you go to a show and you stick your head in the car and you, you get that sort of sensory overload of smells and you see it and you might be more tempted to buy on a whim, if you like, rather than perhaps some of the auctions that you ran last year where people turned up specifically looking for the types of cars that were on offer. Do you think that was a change? Yeah, I mean, you do get the odd people that buy on a whim. Um, it's not the majority of the auction buyers, if I'm honest. But uh, somebody who walks onto an auction stand really just looking and then suddenly something catches their eye that just, you know, they buy into 100%, it catches their imagination. That does happen. Um, but I would say it's rarer rather than, than, than commonplace. So I think most people buying at auction these days, however, wherever and however the auction is, they like to do their homework, they like to do their research, um, they want to understand what they're buying and they want to make sure that when they get it, it's going to give them pleasure and not pain, you know, and uh, it's amazing what people, the variety of people categorize auctions in different ways. You know, some people think, oh, well, if it's been sent to auction, there must be a problem with it. Because, of course, there are certain types of auction that that is true. You know, back in, in my motor trading days when I was a main dealer, if you took in a car that had a problem, you know, if it had been clocked or had an accident or whatever, you sent it to the auction, that's what you did. And some people these days think think that's what we do. And of course, that's not what we do at all. We're, we're a specialist auction house. So we do the exact opposite. So we, we probably take, for every 10 cars we're offered, we probably take two or three in and reject six or seven. Because if there's anything that we see that is not correct or is going to cause hassle, pain, or is not going to present the car in the best possible light, we, we just simply don't take it in. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about perceptions of auctions there because some might be a little intimidated by buying a car at auction. So um, for those people that have sort of watched the auctions take place but maybe have not felt confident enough to get involved and buy a car, what you would, would your advice to those people be? Yeah, I think there is a hesitancy uh, for the exact reasons that I've just explained. You know, I think people think, well, is this a, is this a dumping ground for problem cars? And my advice would be to talk to the team. You know, we've got eight consigners and they're all um, experienced. They're all, like me, trying to do the right thing for the right reasons with the cars and present the best cars possible. They've gone through the selection process just the same as I have. And they've invariably met the families that own the cars. You know, we tend to put a picture of a consigner on our website next to the car that they've consigned. And that's because they will have met the family, they will have read the history file, they will have bought into the whole journey of that car, the whole life of that car. And they will know as much about it as anybody really. And if you like, they're almost independent as well. I know you might say, well, they've got a vested interest in it selling, but they're independent in the sense that they've assessed it independently. So if the owner says something, you know, it's, it, they have to verify that and make sure it's correct. And they are real enthusiasts, and, and it's, it's a lovely process, really. You know, I still consign cars myself because it, it's enjoyable. You know, it's a journey, and you, you meet the family, you meet the car, you learn about it, and by the time it comes to auction, you've got belief in it, you know, and, and that's, that's part of it. And that belief should come over to, to a member of the public that's, that's concerned or wary or cautious, you know, and um, by talking to the team, 
that will give them that reassurance i think what really brings a car alive is its human story isn't it it's the way that it's touched someone's life and the history that it has around it and i think that is what captivates most people's imagination when they buy isn't it it is i mean i'll give you an example this is an unrehearsed top of my head but yesterday i was starting to write the script of a of a uh, jaguar type series two at roadster and um I've got the history file, the car was delivered, the car's owned by somebody I know, and he told me a little bit about it, but I got the history file out, and I spent an hour reading the history file, and then going back to look at the car, and then going back to the history file, and then, with my pen and paper, start to write the, the script, and it was a fascinating story. I mean, this, this car, for example, um, was sold locally at Bromsgrove, uh, by All Saints Garage Bromsgrove to a, to a private individual who then owned the car, believe it or not, for the next 38 years. <laughs> and and he, he used it as a daily driver uh, for, for its initial period. Then he used it for weekends, high days and holidays. And then in 1979, from memory, I think it was, 1980, he took it off the road because he'd had it for so long and had so much enjoyment, he wanted to restore it. But because he was busy with life, as I guess all of us are, it didn't actually come back on the road until 2012. <laughs> Can you believe that? So he, he, he spent 30 years restoring that car. And for those 30 years, he photographed the whole process, um, which is lovely. And it's all in the file and so on and so forth. And in 2012, it came back on the road as probably uh, one of the best and most original um, Series 2 E-types. And um, and there it is, and 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 he then finally sold it. I think he was was reaching uh, the point where you know his life was he was putting his life in order. I think that's the way that's the way that people say it. And he sold it to uh, this pal of mine in 2015, and and this pal was only the second ever owner. You know, and that's a really interesting story. And and at first glance, it's just a series two E-type Roadster in white. Um, you know, that looks quite nice from the outside, but. The minute you get into the story and the history file, the thing comes alive and it becomes interesting, I think. Talking of E-types, Nick, um, your next virtual event is, of course, Race Retro. And you have got, well, you've pulled off a bit of a coup here, I think, because it is, of course, the 60th anniversary of the Jaguar E-type. And you've got the 60th Jaguar E-type up for sale. Tell us more. Well, you know, why wouldn't you uh, do that? It's so symmetrical. Chassis number 60, <laughs> <laughs> chassis number 60, the uh, fixed head coupe, this is, chassis number 60, is indeed in our sale and um, very timely with the 60th anniversary. We're very excited about having that car and obviously very proud to offer it. I mean, we've got quite a nice little collection of E-types building because um, the car I just told you about is also in the sale. That's fresh off the press. That Nobody knows about that car yet. Um, but we've got other E-types. We've got a restoration project, for example, um, which is literally, uh, you know, an undrivable uh, E-type that's in about, I don't know, 900 pieces or something. Uh, and that car, believe it or not, has done 2,800 miles from new. I mean, it's extraordinary, but it's true. All the details are on our, on our website with the backstory. Um, fantastic restoration project for a genuine 2,000-mile car from new. We've also got a lovely, very honest and original uh, Series 1 uh, 4.2 that uh, sadly has come from a deceased estate. But again, a car with a nice story. I've, I've met the widow. She's a lovely lady, and, and they'd had the car, you know, take end of 20 years and done lots of nice trips in it and so on and so forth. And that car 
as it transpires, um, in the middle of its life, in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, was owned by the, the actor and uh, national treasure that is Nigel Havers. So that's a nice, wow. nice story that came out of the, again, researching the history. Nigel is actually a customer of ours, and um, he spotted it on the website and, and rang me up and said, that's my old car. I have a feeling some of our female listeners will be swooning at the thought of this, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. He's a very thoroughly nice human being for what it's worth. So there we are. So, you know, there's E-types aplenty. There's a Series 14.2, there's a restoration product, there's chassis number 60, there's a Series 2 4.2 I've just told you about, and there are other E-types under discussion. So I think it's fair to say that in the 60th anniversary, we're going to do our bit, and we love the E-type because... It's a benchmark car, you know, it, 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 it signifies what's going on in, in the industry in its own way. You know, if E-type prices are up and E-types are selling, it means we're in a strong market. If E-type prices are down and it's all a bit of a struggle, it means we're in a tighter market. They're, they're a benchmark car. Where are they at the moment? Are they, they doing well? And, and do anniversary years make a difference to a value of a car? I think what it does is it creates interest. It reminds people, you know, 60 mm. years is a long time. Not many cars sit around that were built 60 years ago. And, you know, it is the icon. It is the British sports car icon. It's the ultimate British sports car icon. And I know it's often been said, and it's a bit boring to repeat it, but even Enzo Ferrari said it was the most beautiful car in the world. You know, I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? Bearing in mind, he built some pretty amazing uh, cars in his lifetime yeah and incredible that it came out of austere post-war britain at the same time really that's what always amazes me yeah yeah i mean william lyons was clearly a very switched on individual wasn't he no question about it yeah yeah absolutely and and took the great talent that of course had learned on aircraft people like malcolm sayer that, that instructed that design that you know we look at the e-type and it is a thing of beauty but it is also a thing of function isn't it because those curves they're there for aerodynamics as much as beauty yeah they're lovely i mean it's just a lovely lovely car and um you know that's what gets you out of bed in the morning and gets you to work every day you know dealing with cars like that the old mark ii saloon jag which you know when it was launched in in the early 60s was the fastest four-door in the world we we've definitely had some really good quality 3.8 mark ii's of late um there were a couple coming up in this sale, and 3.4s, actually. But even last year, you know, when we were doing the, the, the lockdown thing, we probably had the best 3.8 Mark II we've ever had in our lives. I can't remember exactly what it made, but it was 60-odd thousand quid, I think, from memory. But it was just the perfect gunmetal red leather manual overdrive 3.8, and it just encapsulated everything that was great about that era and about Jaguar. It was a really special car. Um, do you see growth in Jaguars of a more modern era now and and is that a trend that you're seeing throughout your sales that as new audiences come into the historic vehicle world that some of the younger classics are reaching better prices and getting more interest at auction yeah definitely you know it's 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 there things like xkrs xk8s xjrs are now starting to have their day you know they really are they're coming back for a sort of second time round, so to speak. You know, I had an XJR. I bought an XJR saloon, X300, the last series ever made, um, about seven years ago. I- I've got a four-mile journey from my home to my office where I'm talking to now. And uh, I bought this XJR just to do that trip every day. Because why wouldn't you? You've got a supercharger. You've got um, elegance. You've got anonymity today because they are relatively anonymous. 
so you're not sat there in some flash whatever Mercedes or whatever with all the bells and whistles and, and it was just a lovely car and I kept that car for seven years I've never kept a car for seven years in my life I kept that car for seven years because I think I paid 14,000 for it something like that 13 or 14,000 and it has just been sold and, and I think I got 12 or 10 or something back for it you know it, it, it's just it's just a car that has come into its day second time round now, I think. And there are lots of other examples, XK8s, XKRs. Jag have always had great designs, and, and great designs will always live on. You're going to roll your eyes at this question, because I know you get asked it all the time, Nick, but uh, all my listeners will be urging me to ask it. If you were to put your money into a future classic <laughs> for, for something that would appreciate, uh, where should people be putting their money and uh, what should they look for in a future investment? Well, if you, if you want to, uh, it depends what you want. I mean, you have, first of all, you have to be turned on by what you're doing. Don't buy a car just because it's a you know, supposed investment. That's never going to give you satisfaction. You've got to lust after whatever it is that's caught your eye and you've got to live the dream. Um, and if that's a modern car that has perhaps airbags and central locking and things that you regard as important, you know, I've just illustrated that, that Jags from the 90s and 2000s, XK8, XJs, nice cars like that are definitely cars that you could put away. I mean, even early F-types now, you know, are, are, are starting to, to look collectible, aren't they? particularly the rarer models. So if you want a modern car, that's something to consider. If you want a real classic, then I've touched on things like E-types, which are very stable auction cars, um, 3.8 Mark IIs or 3.4 Mark IIs. You know, XJ Coupes, XJ Coupes, really nice XJ Coupes are now coming back. There is a following, definitely, for those. Um, but it's got to, you've got to like your your... Your heart, it's got to light you up. You know, it's not just a financial thing. It's got to, you've got to have pleasure from, from the ownership and you've got to want to get in it. And, um, you know, you have. That XJR I had, you know, I mean, I used to smile every time I got in it because I was a BMW dealer for 25 years. <laughs> and when you've been a BMW dealer for 25 years, the word Jaguar doesn't really occur as something you'd want to be involved in. And the first thing I did when I got into this uh, classic car sector, having sold my BMW dealership, the first car I bought was a Jaguar because I'd never been able to before. And, you know, all these years of being told that, you know, BMWs are superior cars, it's sort of, you get fed up with it after a while. And um, so it always used to make me smile when I opened the door of a Jaguar for the seven years that I ran one. And uh, that, that I'm trying to illustrate there the, the, the passion that's involved rather than just the investment. Brilliant advice. Buy something you love. Tell us about what started your love of cars then, Nick. You know, where did it all begin for you? And what was the, the car that you remember, perhaps from your childhood, that really sparked this lifelong passion? Well, I was very lucky because my father, uh, my late father, he's been gone 30 years, but um, when he passed, he was the owner of the biggest private motor group in the UK. He was a very, very successful motor trader, and he had franchise dealerships, car and truck, uh, all over the place, you know, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Manchester, Preston, London, Birmingham, you name it. And uh, so he used to come home in some pretty amazing cars when I was growing up. He also had a, a passion for American cars, and he was the sole importer for the General Motors brands, cars like Chevrolet and Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Buick, they're all GM brands. And so, uh, you know, I was taken to school in a Camaro, I was taken to school in a Javelin. I was taken to school in an Ambassador. <laughs> um, the original <laughs> Ambassador, not the Austin Ambassador. Yeah, so that kind of, when you're surrounded by that, 
obviously gets into your blood. And, um, you know, sadly, we lost my dad uh, young. He was only uh, more or less the age I am now, actually. Uh, and I was only early 20s. So when he died, um, you know, the, he left a, a lot to follow on a lot a lot of dreams and so on and so forth that he hadn't fulfilled and um and so that's what that's what ignited me and his his most successful business was was his bmw businesses he had three bmw dealerships when he passed and uh, and i ran those for a while and then i went um over to northern ireland and ran his toyota lexus uh business in in belfast as well and had i used to have a, a week a month over in belfast which was fantastic to learn about northern ireland and what was then a very difficult time for Northern Ireland and to, to see other brands and what have you. So it kind of just all happened like that. I was just into cars in a big way. And uh, eventually when I left, we, we floated my father's business. My brother and I floated it on the stock exchange. And then when we floated it, I left. I was 34, um, quite wealthy at that point, um, and left and started on my own and, and, and set up my own Motor Group, and I wanted BMW, and I wanted Porsche, and I wanted excited, exciting brands, and I was able to do that. I was very, very lucky, and um, built that up, and then sold that, well, to Roger Penske, who the Sitna Group, as it's known here in the UK. To be honest, not at the best time uh, in in the recession. We were expanding, and it was all a bit difficult. It was, it wasn't the best time. 2008-9, you know, it's well known was was a difficult global time. But I took the decision to sell it and get out um, and uh, sort of sit back and lick my wounds. And then I, from there I emerged, I thought, well, classic, I've got a classic car collection. I thought, well, that's my passion, you know, it's my classic car collection. So I started to buy and sell the classic car collection from home uh, in 2010. And I realized that the only people that were, that were winning out of what I was doing was the auction companies. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so sat on the board of Silverstone, which I was at the time, I... Um, I looked at the wing which we built for Bernie Eccleston for the Grand Prix, this enormous building, and I thought, well, that building is empty most of the blooming year. You know, it's not doing anything other than the Grand Prix. And that's when I had the light bulb moment to to rent the wing and, and start holding classic car auctions, and uh, the rest you know. Well, of course, your association with Silverstone comes from your motorsport as well, doesn't it? And you've had quite a good career racing cars also. Yeah, I have. I've been very lucky. You know, I, I started modestly sprinting and hill climbing and enjoyed that and then had to go at saloon racing because I, I'd become a, uh, I was working for my dad's BMW dealership and the M3 was launched. I mean, you'd have to be completely uh, brain dead not to spot that was going to be a good car. <laughs> and um, I uh, got very involved in the original E30 M3 and raced in the production saloon car championship, um, which in those days was known as the Uniroyal production saloon car championship and I, I was lucky enough to win that in 1989 and that that um set me off then into british touring cars which was obviously a very special time in the early 90s you know when um when all the manufacturers were, were there and big money was being spent and it was on tv with murray walker commentating it was a great era you know to be involved in so i thoroughly enjoyed that did a bit of sports car racing after that um with porsches porsches was porsches as a brand was coming into my life then and I went from saloons to sports cars, and then I started a bit of rallying as well because I'd always admired rallying, watching in Sutton Park, people like Roger Clark and so forth, and Russell Brooks, Tony Pond, that era. Those were the guys I watched, and I wanted to, to have a go, so I started rallying, and um, I was lucky enough to win the 2000 British Historic Rally Championship, which was, uh, in the year 2000, was, was quite competitive. You know, it was... Um, four rounds of tarmac rallying and four rounds of uh, uh, forest rallying. And it, it was great fun. 
and um, that again was with the 911. So the Porsche brand was was in my motorsport world big time by that stage. Um, and then uh, more latterly, I've done you know historic saloons. I've been lucky enough to do Goodwood a few times. I won the St Mary's Trophy, um, which was a lovely thing to do. And um, I think I've done a dozen or so revival races at Goodwood. I also got to drive somebody else's big McLaren Can-Am car, which was at Goodwood, which was really special. You know, five or six hundred horsepower V8 in the back of a single seat around Goodwood does focus the mind. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. <laughs> 100, 171 down the main straight was a, a frightening number that I do remember. Yeah, so in a nutshell, I've, I've been very lucky and, and I've particularly enjoyed more latterly, you know, um, getting my original touring car back which I had for the last 10 years and, and driving that with my son, you know, which was really, really special because he was a baby when, when that car was new. You are, Nick, like so many that we talk to here on the podcast, much like myself as well, actually. When this scene, when this world gets into your blood, you could do nothing else with your life, really, could you? And every bit of it touches every element of of life. It's not just a job. It's, it is a lifestyle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, and, and we're very privileged and very lucky to be in it, I think. And, uh, Mm. You know, I, I enjoy it every day. I genuinely do. And I think that's probably what has given Silverstone Auctions the success that you've seen over the last few years is that you and I know so many of your team have that passion. And I guess as well from selling classic racing cars, historic racing vehicles, you can talk to customers in such a way that you understand acutely what that car is and why it's significant. And actually, in many cases, what it's like to drive. Yeah. That makes a difference, doesn't it? It does. And I think that's why people have faith in us, you know, because, and it's not just me, by the way, you know, Lionel Abbott's in my team and he was far more successful at racing than I was. You know, he was a works driver and uh, in the same era as me. And uh, he has equally as much knowledge, if not more, you know, and some of the other guys, Charles Smalley, Joe Watts, you know, Steve Keane, they've all got racing experience and racing knowledge. So it is, it is quite a broad brush of experience and, and understanding and I, I guess you're right that's why people you know have have faith and trust in us and it is, it's good to know well it's great to see that uh, that passion is working out and uh, also that you've overcome some of the challenges that the pandemic has thrown all of us over the last 12 months but there's one more challenge isn't there for auctioneers and the classic car market in general as we head into 2021 Yes, I'm going to say it's the B word Brexit and things are starting to emerge now, aren't they, as to how this is going to affect sales with carnets required to take cars over the channel and to bring them back again. And things are not quite as simple as they once were selling into Europe, are they? Definitely not. Uh, That is a big issue. And that depends on so many different aspects, whether the car's been restored or not, what age the car is. Um, all sorts of things. It's, it makes our life very complicated. And we've got some really good European clients, so you know it will mess us about a bit. Um, one of the things we are going to do at the Race Retro Sale, which we've never done before, is we're going to offer a, a lot in absentia. So it's a, it's a road car, a trailer, and a little Lotus Elite race car that is in Germany. It won't be at Race Retro, unlike every other car. And we are going to offer it effectively to our European clients to bid even though we haven't got the car there because they can buy it and go and collect it in Europe with zero tax and zero um, hassle. Um, But for that client to send the car over here for us to have physically here is a nightmare for him. 
and quite rightly, I can understand why he doesn't want to do it. So yeah, it will change the the, the face of of the job we do of, of auctions, you know. And um, I, I hope it gets better um, over time. I'm not sure it will, but I hope it will, because you know that was not the intent of uh, of, of the Brexit vote, was it? You know, people didn't want that to. Uh, and it's not just classic cars; there's all sorts of other things that are affected, you know. So anyway, there we are. That's that's the situation we're in, and uh, yeah, it's it, it will change the face a bit. I think there's lots of worry amongst the motorsport community as well about the costs of competing in Europe now, because you know Le Mans Classic is hopefully taking place in July. In order to put your car on a trailer and take it over to France, you've now got to put down all of these deposits and carnet payments and. We worry, I guess, that that's going to make people think twice about leaving the country with these cars and taking them across the world. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it won't, but it, there is a risk of it. I agree, there is a risk of it. Mm. It's very frustrating, very frustrating. Having said that, if you've driven at Classic Le Mans, and I have, it would take a lot to stop you going back. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We'll be talking about uh, Le Mans Classic and uh, some of the Jaguars that are racing there this year. Hopefully, fingers crossed, COVID allowing, as I say after every event mentioned these days, um, uh, later on in the podcast. But uh, yeah, we'll see the, uh, the challenges unfold. And I suppose for you, having had the pandemic and having to adapt in the way that you've done so successfully with online auctions, and using digital platforms as you've just described there there are ways to get around those challenges with moving cars into europe that uh, will hopefully work out for you and as you say things will uh, will come out in the wash genuinely think they will i'm always an optimist well nick it's been fantastic to learn more about silverstone auctions you're a great friend to us here at the jaguar enthusiast club we hope to have one of your auctions back at one of our, our events in the future uh, one day we enjoyed it at haythrop when you came uh, to be a part of that and uh, it's great to talk to you and find out more about the world of auctions so nick well thanks for joining us thank you very much it's been a pleasure You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. Well, restarting the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast for Series 2, we also, of course, restart our motorsport diary with Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. And, of course, early spring, Tom is busy on the spanners getting the car ready for the season ahead. And this is the time when sort of action gets frenetic, doesn't it, as you get the car ready to go racing again? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. We are allowed to go back out and racing. Um Unfortunately, that has meant we've missed our first round, which was meant to be at Silverstone, which is conveniently a couple of days before that. But good news is um, Colin and Chris from the JC have managed to um, rearrange everything with the classic touring car. And we've now been able to move the date to the 24th and 25th. um, And it is going to be the original race that we had planned for Silverstone. So we're really looking forward to it. um, And it's great that we finally got a deadline to work to. So, we're now busy preparing uh, my car and also 
the other XJR6, um, which Matthew's going to be driving for this year. Um, and we've got the first track day um, for that car at Goodwood on the 29th. So it's all starting to happen in really fast now. Is there a set process that you go through to get the car prepared? Or is it just basically going back through the problems of last year and fixing <coughs> the issues that you know you're running with? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. So the, the first thing we obviously look at doing is we want to rectify if we had any issues last year and what we can then do to, to improve it for the following year. So kind of the rule of thumb is everyone's normally busy in the winter trying to find where they can find any lap time. So everyone's trying to do the same. So we always try to keep a couple of tricks up our sleeve over the winter for the next season. So um, with my car, I don't know if you can all remember back, we had a couple of small cooling issues with the car is running a little bit hotter than what we expected and it was kind of a, a repeat issue through the year. So with my car, we've been looking at how we can improve that. So we've we've changed the way the radiator lays out on the front just to try and improve that. And then we just go to back to basics, really, Wayne. So we, the cars are stripped right down. We remove all the, the, the dampers and brakes and just strip everything down just to um, re-grease the bearings where we can or replace if needed and just check, really, for any wear and tear items. Now, Matthew's car has had a slightly different process. It got a couple of track days last year. It didn't get a huge amount of use. He's planning to do the full season, um, which is his first season um, actually racing. So it'd be really interesting to follow him. So his car's been in storage for quite a, a, a bit of time. So with that one, we've just gone back to basics, really. Exactly the same. Strip everything back down, remove all the dampers, brakes, bearings, re-grease and refit. And then we'll just replace the fluids. And then when we start testing it, we'll be able to add improvements and set the car up as we go through the season. And you go and take the car out on track days just to have that little bit of track time to set the car up ready for when the race season properly starts. Yeah, that's exactly it. So both cars will go out with like a base setup that we'll do here in the workshop. And exactly as you described, we'll, we'll, we'll do track days or test days wherever we can. Um, because of the whole COVID scenario, it seems like that everyone's trying to get track days um, booked at the moment so it seems pretty manic so a lot of the dates from last season we've been able to that were cancelled we've been able to move over um, so the first one is the 29th and that's with Matthew's car so like I say we'll go with a basic setup we'll get him in the car and we'll set the car up around him on the day and, and like I say just monitor the car and make sure that there's nothing untoward and, and go from there really I mean preparing the car is one thing but how about yourself preparing you the driver for the season ahead because especially with the covid and all of the pandemic restrictions i'm guessing that you do you feel a little bit rusty going into this season yeah absolutely to be honest i mean like you say is what normally happens is the first race is often very early in april and a lot of the time obviously over the winter most of the tracks are shut so that doesn't really open till march so you're absolutely bang on you are a little bit rusty so we try to where we can get some testing in um and get some as much seat time as possible before the before the season starts just to to get into the feel of the car um obviously ultimately you're, you're driving a car um to its limitations so you want to build to that slowly you don't want to just jump straight in and, and go over the limit straight away so it's something that we try to bring in slowly and, and you're all right when you do get rusty over pre-season there's absolutely nothing for kind of four or five months and then suddenly you're back it back in a seat and away you go but it does come back fairly quickly um what is sometimes hard is if you've done a lot of changes over the winter getting used to that car again can be a little bit interesting so the best thing we find is just as much seat time as possible but there is a fine line between wearing the car out before you start racing to getting used to it if that makes sense 
And of course, this year, very special season because you once again have Jaguars all on one grid together instead of being mixed in with others. So how are you expecting that to change the dynamic of the season's racing? Yeah, that, that's right. And that's something that we've we've wanted to gain back. And Colin and, and quite a few others um, and Chris have worked really hard behind the scenes to make that happen. So we're running with a classic touring car on our own grid, which... I'm massively excited about. Um, it's really good to, to be back on a grid with just Jaguars because you're all on a level playing field. Sometimes when we're with the Open Series, um, you're mixed between cars that are, are completely different regulations to you. So a lot of those are, can be more modern and they're not really on the same playing field, if that makes sense. So it can be awkward when you're competing in your class um, and you're either coming up on a car that's slower than you or you've got other cars that are faster coming past you. So I am really excited to, to have our own grid back. And uh, I think we've also got some TV coverage and stuff so everyone can, can see and follow the racing series a lot easier than you would have been able to before. Absolutely. And we'll uh, keep you posted via Friday Spotlight and this very podcast on how you can keep up to date with the action from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship and Tom over the coming weeks you'll be sharing your diary with us with your motorsport diary and dialing in from your workshop and from the race circuits themselves to tell us how the races are going and how the car's holding up and what modifications you're making to it along the way we look forward to hearing how the season develops but there's been other developments as well outside of racing because you have officially been announced as part of the well official technical team of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club now, haven't you? Yeah, that's correct. And I'm, I'm really pleased to, to have been offered that opportunity. Um, so we're, we're going to be doing some, uh, some seminars um, over Zoom to talk about some of the uh, more various topics, actually. And we are open to some suggestions on what, what people would like us to talk about. And we're also going to be doing some regular features. And I can answer any questions um, via email if anyone does have any. Next week's episode, um, we are going to talk through some of the modifications we've done to the radiator assembly on my vehicle. Um, we're also going to go through some of the, the basics that we've done in regards to setting up the dampers before we go to the first round. Um, and we're also going to talk about um, some of the preparation that we've done on Matthew's car as well because it's his first season. Brilliant. We look forward to that. That's all coming up in the next episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcasters. Season two continues. Until then, Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. Thank you.